Welcome to episode 256 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got a super exciting conversation ahead on this episode, in part because you've let me choose the subject, which you know nothing about. You will hear about it in the same way, well, almost the same time, of course, as those who are listening. It's true. I feel like uh, this is almost like one of those like magic shows you go to where they're like, and this gentleman I've pulled from the crowd that I have never <laughs> met before in my life. That's what I feel like, except I really don't know what we're talking about, so... I was going to say, do we need to give that disclosure? Like, Tony, is it true that we have not <laughs> spoken about the topic at hand? This is true. It's true. I don't know. Is it true that you and I have not, I've not given you any clues? That is not true. You said it's something we've talked about before, sort of. <laughs> about a hundred episodes ago. That's true. But that, that could true. be just about anything, so. That's true. Well, let me wrap up the topic to anticipate a bit in three words, law, gospel, alcohol. Oh man! So that's where we're going. That's oh, going to be our topic. But of course, before we get there, let's do a little affirming and a little bit of denying. So Tony, let's kick it into negative gear first oh, so we can come out at the top of the hill thinking positively. What are you denying against? So this is kind of one of those um, adventures in Romans one kind of denials. So have you heard of the simulation hypothesis? Yes. Yes. This is the stupidest thing that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so this is, this is an exercise in people just finding any excuse, any possible, any excuse to deny the plain faced reality that there is a creator and that we all owe uh, obedience and worship to that creator. So the, the simulation hypothesis goes something like this. Imagine that uh, sometime in the future, uh, our ancestors create a simulation of their, uh, or our, our descendants create a simulation of their ancestors, right? So this is a plausible scenario we can conceive of it. And so the question is, if they did that, are we more or less likely to be the simulation of those ancestors or the actual ancestors themselves? And so right there, you have a 50-50 chance, okay? Well, now, if, if we're the simulation, then in our simulated reality, our simulated descendants are going to create that simulation. So now there's a second layer of reality that's a, a simulated, a simulation within a simulation. And so now our odds from, of going from being 50-50% simulation now are 33% simulation, right? Because there's a, a base reality and two simulated realities. Well, if we're in that second simulated reality, go down into our simulated descendants and they're going to create the simulation. So now we're down to 25% simulation or 25% chance that we're not a simulation because there's three layers of simulation and one layer of base reality. So the argument goes that if you just keep on doing this, then the odds become in infinitely small that we are not, not zero, but infinitely small that we are in fact uh, base reality and not a simulation. Well, here, here's why this is just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There is zero evidence that our ancestors who do not yet exist are going to create a simulated reality. And even if they do, there's zero evidence that somehow we are that simulated reality. So another way to think about it is like, all right, we've, we've all heard, most of us have all heard of and probably played the game, the Sims. Well, in the Sims, 
you can keep, you can make your sim play the sims. And so then presumably the sim who's being played by the sim that you're playing could also play the sims onward into infinity. And so they're saying that the the chance that any given person is not a sim within one of those nested layers of sims is infinitely small. And as I said, this is this is just a probability like fallacy because it, it takes something that's like possible and then it like uh, like explodes that possibility by this sort of weird like nested recursion model and it just doesn't work it just doesn't work and and here's here's the kicker most of the time when people try to postulate this simulation hypothesis it's either implicitly or sometimes explicitly used to deny the reality of a creator but here's the thing that they don't get e- even if even if we are a thousand layers down on a simulation and this podcast is a thousand layers down on a simulation. You can then go a thousand layers up and at some point you have to hit a base reality. And in that base reality, there still demands a need for someone to have created that base reality. And that is God. You know, you might think of it like, um, if you have a figure, you're an author and you write a book and you write a book about an author and that author in your book writes a book about the author. Like you keep going down well, you have to keep, eventually you have to go back up. And so the author, the real base reality author, all of the logical and uh, evidential arguments that we might use about the the reality of a creator that created that original re- author still hold true no matter how many how many layers down into cre- you know false reality you go, there still has to be that base reality and that base reality demands a creator. So th- like I said, this is just an excuse. It's just a another example of fallen creatures uh, doing everything they can, even postulating these weird, stupid, hypothetical situations that may or may not be true in order to escape the reality that there's a creator. It's kind of like Richard Dawkins saying, well, yeah, intelligent does design, that's not really a thing, but a life on Earth appears to be intelligently designed, so maybe aliens did it. They brought crystals right. and that. Like that. That's really what this is, is it's just another way to create that same sort of argument to deny a creator. There's this really great quote against the simulation hypothesis or theory. Let me read it for you because I'm I'm pretty sure this will be familiar to you and you'll probably know who wrote this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God (laughs) has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. I'm looking at you, Watson and Crick. (laughs) And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Looking at you guys again. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Yeah, totally agree with you. And even what's troublesome is mathematically this idea that you have... All these simulations become derivative, of course, like right. you're saying. So what's odd is that first it requires that base level reality. So even a derivative thing has an underlying thing which gives it value, and that's the base reality. In other words, you can't have the simulations without the base reality. Right. But mathematically, it presumes that we ought to weight all things equally, whereas a simulation carries lesser weight by necessity than the actual reality right. from which it sprang. And so at the end of the day, still, it's all problematic Actually, this is going to really fit in well to our topic because 
this is, you know, human being sense of wanting to define clear boundaries that somehow make us feel better and smarter. Complexity sometimes is the thing that we use to hide our own insignificance and our own lack of understanding or ignorance in this case. So you were right. Like that is straight. I thought there might be a connection when you said this is Adventures of Romans 1, but you were like, this is literally yeah, like oh, Romans yeah. one eighteen and following. Yeah, usually when we say uh, adventures in Romans one, we're just talking about some some sort of like general principle that demonstrates that man's really messed up. No, this is like straight up people denying the creative reality <laughs> and and worshiping it instead of the the creator. And like here here's here's the biggest thing. Like so, Occam's razor, right, is this philosophical principle that the the more or less the the answer to a question that has the least number of extraneous premises is probably the true answer. And this is mostly applied, this should mostly be applied to matters of physical science, right? So if I if I uh, knock something off the edge of my table and it falls to the ground, it's it's more likely that there's some sort of force, some sort of natural law or force that's pulling it to the ground than it is that there's invisible fairies that are pushing it towards the ground, right? That, that That's an extra premise that's not necessary to explain it. The simulation hypothesis fails Occam's razor on the very first front of it because you right. have to postulate all of these extra additional things out there that justify why this is true when you could just say, it seems like we perceive reality and that we're real beings. So therefore, the most likely answer is that we are. And it's kind of like that brain in a vat thing. Like if you were a brain in a vat and everything you experienced was just a, a projection or just sens- sensory data that was being fed to that brain in a vat, would you even know? And the real answer is, would it even matter? Like, would it make a difference to anything if you were? Like if we are simulated reality that is so advanced that we experience consciousness and free will, which is what the simulation hypothesis like rests on that simulations get so advanced that it's actually consciousness that's being simulated. It's not just uh, a replication of consciousness. It's actually consciousness. Well, then what does it even matter if it's a simulation or not? And And the point is for them, like, well, it matters because then it means that like everything that happens in creation has a naturalistic explanation. Even the weird things that happen in a simulation now are explained by natural principles of basically glitches in the matrix instead of, you know, things like miracles that happen. Well, there's no more appeal or no more need to appeal for the, to the supernatural for that because it's just a glitch in the matrix that causes such and such to happen. Well, now you've just have like a simulation of the gaps argument going on. So it really is, it really is, uh, it's an interesting topic to bring up. I think it's interesting because a lot of people who have heard of it in sort of a casual way sort of intuitively understand that it's a it's just a stupid argument but it sounds and feels really like erudite right. to affirm it so I, i've actually introduced the hypoth the simulation hypothesis conversation as a way to sort of open up a, a witnessing opportunity to sort of say like have you ever heard about this simulation hypothesis what do you think about that and when they start to go into it and they you know they, they say things like well yeah it makes sense that this is a created reality because of look at how well designed it is you go well i've got a better explanation for that than some sort of nested simulation that's going on um and you know it's presuppositional apologetics it's it's what's what's the more consistent worldview that we're just a bunch of ones and zeros even though it seems like we're a lot more than that or that this is actually an intelligently designed reality and you see in that theory there's this desire somewhere deep down almost hard-coded hard-wired into our minds that 
we want some determinism. Mm -hmm. So we recognize in some respects that we live, like I said before, in a probabilistic world, but we have deterministic thinking. And that determinism that we seek is in the sovereignty of God, who is over all things and working all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. So we want that determinism. We, we desperately do. We want to have some kind of existential laws that somehow bring into reality, even our consciousness itself, that our consciousness, in other words, bows down to some other kind of force. Yeah. So I think you're right. This is kind of, is it, is hilarious the right word? It's like I, hilarious irony because yeah there's this sense that this sounds really smart. And if you even talk about this or it's like cool to believe this kind of thing, because it somehow shows that you have a maturity of intellect that exceeds those others than others around you, or maybe that you're above average. But one of my really favorite quotes from Malcolm Muggeridge is that we have educated ourselves into imbecility. And I think in this particular sense, it absolutely applies. Yeah. Yeah. Those uh, erudite, sophisticated people who look down on those of us who think this is a created reality because they realize that we're actually in a created reality. Like that's what it boils down to. Yes. But instead of acknowledging God and being thankful to him, they deny him and they turn inward to themselves, which is, again, it's just Romans (laughs) one in practice. So it's, it's adventures in missing the point and it's adventures in Romans one. We got to coin that somehow. Like yeah, we got to trademark that. Adventures in Romans 1. We need it's to make everywhere. a t-shirt. I need to make a t-shirt. That's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. Or maybe like a like a face mask. A fanny yeah, pack. That's... A fanny pack that has <laughs> Adventures pack. in Romans 1 on it. <laughs> that's so baller status. <laughs> says, Adventures in Romans 1. Yes. I love it. Yeah. You can only get that kind of content here. Yeah. Jesse, speaking of content you can only get here, what are you denying today? My denial is also a little bit of the serious nature. We're both kind of on the same page. So depending on when you're listening to this, Tony and I are sitting down for this conversation, which will include law, gospel, alcohol, coming shortly to your ears. We're talking on September 12th. And so we have just passed the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001, in which there was the massive terrorist tragedy that occurred in the United States. And of course, it's appropriate for us, uh, I think all across the globe to really mourn the loss of life, the evil that was reflected on that day. And in doing so, I was reading, actually reading the Wall Street Journal had some just interesting coverage, uh, human interest stories. And I think it's always important to remind us that we're talking about people in this particular attack as, as all others involve all kinds of war, all kinds of violence. We need to remember that people are involved in this kind of thing. And the now comes in where I happen to make the mistake of looking at the comments section because I thought, surely of all places here we might find, just in this day and age, some common ground to express some common empathy. And of course, I shouldn't have been surprised, but in some ways I was, at how quickly all of the comments devolved into nonsense, into bickering, into fighting, into polemic things. And I thought, we just cannot be charitable through empathy for a second. We cannot just look at something and say, here we had a a great tragedy. So I'm denying against this ad too, which says, I can't can't let myself lean into being empathetic and compassionate to those who have been profoundly impacted by great tragedy without immediately trying to associate with politics or worldview or morality and then going after somebody who I think has a different view on that than myself. Suffering is suffering. And I think we have as Christians a responsibility to embrace that suffering as our Savior did and to speak about the hope in Christ, but to lean in close and to stand alongside those who are suffering. So 
for many people, and I'm in this camp, the tragedy of 9-11 is at arm's length for me. I wasn't personally impacted by that. And I think it's important for us to lean into that. And so two-part denial. The second part of this denial that I'm denying against comes to me personally, and that is that I was reminded in really trying to understand that day again and to think about it and to mourn over it and to grieve with my fellow countrymen who experienced that in a profound way and whose lives are still impacted by it, that I had this sense of solidarity. You know, I had the sense of identity to commiserate and to have fidelity to this group of people because we have something in common that is our citizenship. And then the conviction fell upon me immediately, which was, but what about the family of God? You know, there's so many that even now are being persecuted who have lost their lives in our modern era. And this is the kind of thing that uh, we just don't think about them as our family. We don't suffer their loss in the same way that we do when we think about those of our own citizenry who are brothers and sisters in some kind of identification of government or country and who have died or perished or suffered. And as Christians, it's that family connection is more real than anything else we have in this temporal realm. So denying against not being compassionate first or just being compassionate and also deny against this sense that we can fall away from realizing that our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are suffering. There's a great tragedy in our world among those who are being persecuted, and we really ought to lean in and identify with that in a significant way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I still remember in, like, vivid details that day. And, like, I, I don't want to be, like, all melancholy. In, in the grand scheme of people who were impacted by 9-11, I'm, I'm on the, the low end of that, right? I, I was a, a freshman in college in uh, the Midwest, far away from all of the events. But I still remember, like, real specific things. I remember my mom called me on the phone. It was You know, I was in the Midwest, so I was a time zone behind. I think the first plane hit around 8.15, so it was like 7.15 in the morning. I was just waking up. My mom called me and said, you have to turn on the news. They're flying planes through the Twin Towers. And I, I like, couldn't understand what she was saying. Like, I couldn't fathom the reality of what she was saying. I thought, like, are, are, like, are they flying planes, like, between the towers or, like, around the towers? And then I turned on, and I remember I turned on the TV as the second plane was hitting the second tower. And I was confused. I thought I was watching footage from the first one. And I distinctly remember the newscaster saying, oh, I didn't think we had footage of that. And the other person said, I think this is live. And like the floor dropped out. And I, I just remember that. And I think your, your, your um, exhortation here or your admonishment is probably a better way to go is is right on is that those kinds of world life-changing events are important for us to remember, but in a real way, there are people all across the world on a daily basis experiencing those kinds of world-changing, life-changing events in their own lives. And a lot of those are brothers and sisters in the faith, and we don't we don't often uh, think about that. You know, I think about like what's going on in Afghanistan. And we're starting to hear these stories of like entire churches being martyred. And I'm always a little skeptical of those because they, they always feel a little bit like, uh, like internet forwards you got from your grandma in like 1999. And a lot of them haven't been validated yet. And a lot of them will end up being kind of like these, these things that circulate around the internet, but a lot of them aren't. And if they aren't now, they will be. And we don't we don't often resonate with that. So I think I think that's a good encouragement for us to think a little bit about 
tragedy in the world and how, especially in the family of faith, we need to mourn with those who mourn and, and grieve with those who grieve, not just rejoice with those who rejoice. I think we're, we're pretty good at that, but mourning with those who mourn and really stepping into that and, and resonating with people who are truly genuinely our spiritual family, I think is a, it's a thing we miss the boat on quite a bit. I think a good place for us to start in that, and I'm not trying to stir up guilt in anyone's life, nor am I trying to say that we lessen one tragedy by embracing another. I'm not saying that either. I think the great place to start, though, is finding a way to mourn in our prayer life for those who are experiencing these things, even those whom we don't know. Certainly, you can go to Voice of the Martyrs and get a lot of information very quickly if you want to be exposed, if you want to take some responsibility, stand up and be thoughtful about others who are part of our family who are in tremendous situations that it's just a blessing that most of us don't even have to contend or think about what it would be like to contend with those circumstances. But this morning in prayer is something I've been trying to just embrace and develop and maybe understand a bit that, you know, most of the time, I think you've had this experience. And so have I, if you speak to somebody who is working or ministering in a country where access is restricted and where, the threat of punishment and the threat against life is real. And you ask, how can I pray for you? You're oftentimes, I think on the West, we're expecting like, I don't know, some kind of like practical prayers for, you know, keep me safe or help me to be able to, you know, secure these types of resources. I would say more than 90% of the time, the request that comes back when I ask that in a moment of candor where the person is, would you just pray that we'd be strengthened that the Holy Spirit would provide us with godly strength and courage. And you're just like, dang, you know, like that. So to pray like that and to make that normative is something that I'm working on because I think that we, as you said, we do need to lean in and rejoice and suffer with those who are suffering. And sometimes the best or maybe the only way we can do that is through our prayers. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of um, Acts chapter four, where, you know, it's kind of the first time that the apostles sort of on their own are brought before uh, the council and they get released here. And then the, the, the believers, it says this here, it says when, when they were released, speaking of uh, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the seas and everything, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then it goes on here in verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place where they were filled, uh, gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And and consistently in the early church, whether it's in the book of Acts or whether it's in the testimony from the early church, consistently the response to martyrdom and persecution is not to pray for deliverance from that, although that's okay. It's totally fine to pray for deliverance. Jesus, Jesus actually in some instances commands that his disciples will flee from persecution. Um, it, that's okay. But more often than not, the the prayer is to to suffer well and to testify right. well in that testimony. Right. And when I think about you know what's going on in America with COVID, I feel like this is going to turn into the topic for the episode. But with what's going on in America with COVID, with religious religious rights and infringements on this and that and the other thing, and some of that's legitimate. Like 
just to put it out there, like I think that President Biden has gone way too far with this mandate that he's got going on with this. Every you know, everyone who's every business who's got more than 100 employees has to do mandatory vaccines. Like I think that's an infringement on on legitimate constitutional rights. But the Christian response in perception of persecution has been to fight against that persecution rather than to pray and to seek to faithfully, boldly testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's you know? what I think we we have to learn from people who are facing real life-threatening persecution in other countries. They do what they can to, to escape from it, and that's good, and it's a, a good impulse. But more than wanting to escape, they want to honor and glorify God and to spread the gospel. And I feel like in America, with whatever persecution we're facing, and there's legitimate persecution out there, but our impulse is more to like fight back and assert ourselves rather than to rather than to allow ourselves to be wronged for the glory of Jesus Christ. So yeah, it's just a good it's a good reminder for us to to think about these things. Right on. Well, those I think are two really great denials, both of ours. We should let the, let's let those breathe and marinate a second. And, and while we do that, let's go on and do some really quick affirmations. What do you got? So I am introducing a brand new show to the Society of Reform Podcasters. I'm affirming a show called Small, Small Town Theologian. Let's see if I can get the name right. And this is, um, you know, we've got a lot of two guys talking about theology shows on the network. This is a one guy talking about theology show. And I've said in the past how much respect I have for people who can man- manage to maintain a single person podcast because, man, it's not easy. But uh, the host of the show is called Jonathan Shirk. He does a really good job. Uh, it's pretty quick hits. Uh, usually like 10 or 15 minutes, sort of reminiscent of uh, Five for Fruit, which is an oldie but a goodie that used to be on the, oh, uh, yeah. on the society. And, you know, it's just really good stuff. He's also got a blog uh, that he blogs at regularly, smalltowntheologian.org. So you should already see, uh, unless I forget to do it like I did last time, you should already see his episodes in uh, the mega feed. And if you're not subscribed to the mega feed, go uh, go to whatever podcast app you use and search for Society of Reform Podcasters, and it should show up there. And you will just fill your ear holes with all sorts of amazing <laughs> reform content. That's right. Come meet the mess- rest of the family if you like listening to us. And let's be honest, who doesn't? Although I'm not sure either of our wives subscribe to this podcast, but who doesn't? <laughs> then you should go out and check out some of the cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters. There's lots of really good content. If you go to reformedpodcasts.com, you can get the whole lineup. And trust me, you'll want that. You could, you could fill your entire week. Like anytime you want to listen to podcasts, driving, running, mowing the yard, cleaning the kitchen, you could, I'm confident, you could listen to everything that is posted in a week and still have listening left over. Yeah, that's good stuff. What about you, Jesse? What do you got on the positive side today? All right, I got a quick hit. I'm affirming with a website called Neva, N-E-E-V-A, Neva.com. Actually, Neva itself is something I've been experimenting with for a little while, and you can try it for free. I'm experimenting with it because it's kind of a new, well, not a new way to search, but kind of an old application in a new way. It's basically a search engine without ads. 
And I've been testing how this compares to like Google or DuckDuckGo. And I think it's actually pretty slick. So you get it for three months. You can try it for free. It's $4.95 thereafter per month. But it's an interesting idea. And this is what I like about the fact that you, of course, pay for it and that there's this explicit price. And that is, we often think that you know a lot of the services we get are free. But of course, we're exchanging, as we talked about before, our personal information. That is the cost of using them. So a fun mental exercise would be, think of like the things that you use that are quote unquote free. How much would you pay if they went away to get them back? So like, how much would you pay for for Gmail or Google Maps or any of Apple's free apps. So I love this idea in a way of saying the internet kind of switching over to say, you know what, it's not that those things aren't costing you, you're just not aware of the explicit cost. And maybe at some point it'll be worthwhile to pay a nominal fee for something that is a little bit more unbiased. So Neva is one of those things It allows you to search the internet, but also it allows you to search all of your own accounts. So if you were searching for searching the word wine, for instance, it would pull up lots of things on the internet about wine and also maybe any emails if you have your accounts linked in which you've used that word, which depending on who you are, you might have a lot of emails with that word in it. So it's just kind of a cool little experiment. And again, the fact that you can try it for free, I think is worthwhile. So everybody should check that out and see how your searches change when you use something that isn't influenced by advertisements. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I have not heard of this. You've yet again uh, found an app that I'm not aware of, which didn't used to happen very often. <laughs> I feel like you've upped your game on this stuff. Uh, but I'm it looks pretty cool. Up. They have a sort of a side-by-side comparison of searches on the leading uh, platform, which they don't, they don't identify because I'm sure they don't want to get sued into the ground, but we all know it's Google. Uh, and then they have next to it uh, the same search. And they show you that one of them is like you get 40% of what you're seeing on your screen is sponsored advertisements. And on theirs, everything you see is actual search results rather than sponsored advertisements. So, yeah, I'll check this out. It seems pretty cool. And I'm a big fan of the try it for a few months. And if you like it and you think it's worth it, then start paying for it. I think that it speaks really highly of a company when they're willing to let you try it for free. Uh, because they're confident that you're going to like it. They're, they're, they're confident that you're not going to think, oh man, this is not worth $4.95 to me. They, they think that you're going to try it and find the value in it. So yeah, that's a good recommendation. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, speaking of trying things, that's a horrible segue. We're going to come to this topic finally of law gospel alcohol because it's something that I've been thinking about recently, but it's kind of an old topic warmed over. We've definitely talked about alcohol before. And in fact, you can go back to whatever episode that was. I can't imagine it's named the alcohol episode, but yeah. it's somewhere back there in the catalog. But the reason why I want to bring this up to, to get, again today is because I think it's worth us talking about, especially in the form tradition, how we balance things like law, gospel, and alcohol. And I'm picking on alcohol and specifically alcohol consumption because I think you can choose any number of activities and sometimes an activity, which let's say has a history of being abused, which certainly alcohol consumption does among many other things. It could be overeating or it could be uh, unhealthy body images. It could be swimming too much. I don't know. Anything without moderation could be abused, but it gets associated somehow brought into Christian culture. And then it becomes the thing which you shouldn't do because that somehow signals 
that you're not really a Christian or right. others might see that and think, oh, it is a signal or others might be confused and think, well, this person can't be a Christian because they've done this thing. And alcohol just ends up being the lightning rod. So what I'd like to do is chat about that a little bit. And here's the challenge. Let's do it with zero disclaimers. Because oh. I already want to throw like a bunch of disclaimers oh, out, out on this topic. But I think here's why I want to do it this way is because here's my hypothesis. Let's just start here. My hypothesis is we love theology of glory more than theology of the cross, like to use right. like you know Luther style language. We just love to be able to say, here are my laws of piety. I don't disobey these laws. And you can see them. It's demonstrative. And then I can... Let's just say it this way. I can boast about them in some way. I can at least be proud of them. I can sink myself into some sense of meritorious earnings, if only in my own mind. Right. So the question is, though, and this is where my hypothesis is, is, is it not better that, you know, I want to make a disclosure. I'm not going to do it. Is it not better that what we need is Christians who can embrace the full freedom of Christ to do, say things that somehow might not even on the face seem like they're Christian, but do them in a way that is God honoring, that celebrates his creation, that does things in moderation inappropriately. And in doing that, we actually demonstrate what Christians are all about and we model what true Christian maturity looks like. Yeah. I mean, the answer what is yes. <laughs> Uh, so I guess we have to go back to that, uh, (laughs) back to that other topic we're going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, so let me summarize what you're asking. It sounds, I'm going to, it's, man, it's really hard not to do disclaimers. Yeah. No no disclaimers. So it sounds like what you're asking is more or less, is it better to appropriately enjoy God's gifts than to build a fence around God's gifts because we might accidentally abuse them? Yeah, somehow yeah. the roles have switched here, and what it took me five minutes to say, <laughs> you just said in like ten How words. How dare you? How, How dare, dare you? you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think yes. I think you're right. I think I think we do have this tendency in, and, and maybe not even just reform circles. Um, with alcohol, I think it, in reform circles we react to this, and and people overindulge in alcohol. I know that that's that's. Actually, something that's not super popular to say, but I, I know a lot of people that I actually think probably overindulge in alcohol, and they they tend to sort of throw it out in people's faces as like evidence of their piety, like you were saying before. Mm. Yeah, I can drink I can drink whenever I want, and it's just fine because I have freedom in Christ. But I think that overall, the Christian tendency is to take something that is a good gift and recognize that any good gift can be abused, right? swimming sounds like a silly example, but if swimming is, if, if I love swimming and the only time I can get uh, time in the pool is on Sunday morning and it means that I skip church every couple of weeks to get my, my time in the pool, well, that's a sin, right? You're, you're overindulging in, in swimming in order to, uh, you know, to try to enjoy God's gift, but you're doing so in a way that actually, uh, diminishes it. So I think that that is a tendency that Christians have to sort of like fence off God's gifts and I do think, um, you know, we often become known for those people. I remember real distinctly, and, uh, you know, this is not at all an, uh, like a problem for me, but when I was at, in college, I went to a school that had a policy that you couldn't drink alcohol. Um, it, it, as far as I know, it wasn't rooted in legalism. It was, it was just a decision that was made 
Um, a lot of it was that, you know, over 50% of the population of a college uh, is not legally able to drink. And so rather than try to make one set of rules for the, you know, uh, freshmen, sophomores and juniors, and then a different set of rules for the seniors, they just said our, our campus is a dry campus. And part of this also is that we're not going to have uh, people who drink as part of our community. And I remember going to an event for work and everybody wanted to do shots. And I said, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I signed this agreement and I, I keep my word and I just got harassed for it. And they saw it as me being a legalistic fundamentalist. Uh, and I think even though in that situation that wasn't what was going on, we often can be that legalistic fundamentalist right. uh, who who puts up fences around God's good gifts. So yeah, I think this is a good discussion to have. And I do think it's a, a better testimony to the world when we say all good all good things come from God and in the same time say, but these good things I refuse to enjoy because, you know, because I could be a, become an abuser of it. I don't think that's a very good testimony to people. No, I agree. And, and that was, believe it or not, that's just the preamble. So let me oh, elevate man. it and, and entrap us both Uh-oh. in some talk here because Uh-oh. I think this is the kind of thing we have talked about before where this sense of like, yeah, the example is appropriate. So let's take it one step further. Let's talk about leadership and particularly Christian leadership. And I'm still going to elevate this and make the hypothesis that I think rather than, because sometimes what happens, and I think we talked about this with the, with the Biden rule a long time ago at the beach, actually, I think we talked about this, Yeah, but it's a similar kind of application is I've heard a lot of argumentation that when you reach a certain level of leadership, I think as you have more influence, it does require, you don't have less freedom, but you will often give up your freedoms in service of the gospel, right. in service of the, the Christian community. That's fine. And I'm totally down with that. I know that bordered on disclaimer. I'm totally down with that. <laughs> when it comes to this though, I also think, and I don't want to be like too Lutheran, not Lutheran, the denomination, but Luther-like in the sense that I think sometimes the Christian community is better served when those leaders push back on these weird rules right. that we come sometimes create. And we say, well, cause I've heard a lot of leaders say, I won't do this thing because I don't want somebody to perceive me. So let's talk about it with alcohol. Yeah. For instance, I won't go and have a drink when I'm out because somebody from my church or from a small group might see me and they're going to think, Oh my goodness. I can't believe Jesse is, is having a drink. Like, and, and even if they don't drunk, jump to straight, like he's abusing right. a substance there's a sense of like, oh, I just don't want anybody to think that. And I'm going to come against that kind of hard and say, if anything, we should feel at liberty to do that and then explain or have conversation about that and explain that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free and that this is, in fact, the better Christian example. It is the more m- mature Christian attitude. Yay or nay on that? No, I, I agree with you. I think that... Um if we truly believe what it is we say about our Christian liberty, and the episode that we did was called Christian Liberty, it wasn't it wasn't specifically about alcohol, but that does end up being the lightning rod. If what we say and think is true about Christian liberty is actually true, then when we, for unbiblical reasons, restrain our Christian liberty, we actually are destroying Christian liberty, right? When we when we allow other things to bind our conscience except the scriptures, then we actually are are hindering and destroying Christian liberty. That comes out of the Westminster Confession. And right. so if I, as a Christian who has no conviction that alcohol in, enjoyed in moderation is not only sinful, 
but is one of the things that God more than a lot of other things in scripture calls a blessing, right? If you read (laughs) through the Proverbs and have some sort of idea that wine is a bad thing intrinsically, then you need to like get your eyes checked or go, you know, like I'm not trying to be snarky or like uh, overly flippant, but like maybe you need to take like a hermeneutics class or just like a reading comprehension class because the blessing of wine and even the fact, the, the effects of alcohol when indulged at more than just a little bit, the effects of alcohol are called a blessing. And so I'm obviously, I'm not advocating for going out and getting hammered, but drinking enough where you feel a little bit of a, of an, a joyous sensation and maybe you laugh a little bit more. That's something that the Bible condones. Like it's, it's not seen as a sin to enjoy not just the taste of alcohol, but the actual effects of alcohol. There's a difference between drinking wine and drinking grape juice and the Bible in, in endorses the difference between wine and grape juice. So right. if, if you are going to take something that God says, and this is, this is a, like the crux of Paul's argument, right? Why should I be condemned for giving thanks for a gift that God has given me for partaking in thankfulness? And, and if you're going to do that, well, then what you've done is you've bound, you've bound your conscience by the unbiblical opinions of someone else. You, you recognize that their, their opinions are unbiblical, yet you still bind your own conscience by right. them. That is like the definition of insanity. Now, if, if you're around someone who legitimately has a concern, then there might be some pastoral prudence to abstaining from, from whatever it is they're concerned about for a time as you discuss those things. But if you're like, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to go out and drink alcohol at Applebee's. I'm not going to get a beer at Applebee's when I go out with my wife for date night because someone in the community might possibly maybe come in and see me and what will they think? Well, now now you're not even binding your your right. conscience by a, by a concrete actual wrong right, biblical exactly. opinion. You're binding your conscience by some hypothetical possible situation where someone might have a bad unbiblical opinion. Now you're binding yourself by that. And the problem with that is like, where does that stop? Where does exactly. that end? What things that we acknowledge are good gifts from God are we, are, would we then be unwilling to do? Because then it, then it becomes like a selfishness thing, right? If your principle is I'm never going to do anything that someone may consider unbiblical out of care and concern for them. Well, ev- there's everybody, everything in reality could be considered something by someone to be an unbiblical, unhealthy thing. Right. So so the fact that you now make decisions about how far you're going to go, well, that actually endorses a little bit of selfishness. If instead you actually say, no, I'm going to exercise my Christian liberty to enjoy God's good gifts, period, full stop. That's a totally different thing. It's no longer really about selfishness and making decisions about which which things you'll tolerate, which ones you won't. Again, sometimes there is some pastoral wisdom and I mean like lowercase p pastoral, not also right. uppercase p pastoral. Like pastors have to think about this stuff in different ways, but there's there's pastoral practical wisdom in recognizing that some things are actually divisive in the body of Christ. And so for a time, we exercise our Christian liberty by not allowing that thing to become a division point for a time, for a season, rather than kind of permanently saying like, well, I'm just never going to drink alcohol. I'm just never going to go see a movie. I'm just never going to listen to a non-Christian song. Like you can't, you can't and shouldn't live your life like that. And no one actually consistently does live their life like that. Right. Yeah. So I, what I hear you saying, and this is kind of where I'm at. I like the language you used, of course, like you, you took this and ran with it in the direction I was hoping we would go is that 
This is in, in the, this, I want people to hear this because this is strong language, but I think we stand behind it. Actually, I know we stand behind it. And that is, this is unbiblical binding. Yes. And people might not see it that way. And again, this is for me, like the theology of glory coming in. I think I know many people who have made that stance because they're well-intentioned. They're like, I just don't want anybody to get the, the wrong idea. I'm like, well, that's the problem that that's, they're actually giving them the wrong idea that somehow by trying to fence it off in some way. And I don't mean this to be pejorative. It's very pharisaical because the idea of the Pharisees creating rules upon rules, like stacks on stacks of rules and all these derivative rules so that they never got close to the actual thing with it, which you were supposed to break removes you from the ability under Christ to actually fight against that thing. So the reason why I want to keep this like a disclosure free zone is I already am going to presume that everybody knows this well enough, hopefully to recognize that we're not talking about the younger brother stuff issues here. We're talking about just how we live our lives right. in Christian liberty in such a way that we're actually giving across this example that we're at, we're not being reversely bound in weird ways to things which God would not have us bound to. So, cause I want to just like harp on alcohol. I want to just read from Psalm 104, just to emphasize your point. So somebody could say, we're make sure that we're, we're not taking these things completely out of context with the way like God has like, there's certain things that are God's jam, right? Like changing people's hearts, tents. He loves tents. That's a big thing with God. It's true. Like, I, yeah, it is. Wine. Also like just a really big thing. And it always cracks me up. Like for those traditions, and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody or call anybody out or put anybody on blast. For those traditions that have traditionally taught something like, well, all the wine in the Bible is non-alcoholic. That doesn't make any sense. Like it took Welch's a long time to figure out how to stop grapes from fermenting. Yeah. I, you've heard me joke all the time. Like God wants everything to become alcohol. Like let anything sit out. It wants to become alcohol. So like either we have to say that's a result of the fall or we have to say that God has a special thing for that kind of stuff. Um, but let me just read Psalm 104, 14. So we get this in, in context. This is what the psalmist writes. You, he's talking about God, of course, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So look at these things, like something of the appearance, the outer countenance, something of the inner strength and the physicality of having bread to strengthen both resolve and purpose and physical ability. And then here is wine to gladden the heart. So there's a rejoicing in that. And you find this, like you said, wine used in this way, over and over yeah. and over again. And when we judge something by its abuse, taking alcohol because it can be abuse, but so can coffee or swimming or video games, all these things. And we don't as Christians push back on those things and say, well, it's not that Christians have a laundry list of things they do and don't do. That's theology of glory. The theology of the cross takes those things and says, by Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I defeat every abuse of that thing. And I use it in such a way that brings God glory and that shows that the only truly free man is the one who's in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me say it this way and just try to be as strong about it as I can. There is nothing that is not intrinsically sinful that cannot be enjoyed to the glory of God. Nothing. Full stop, period, nothing, zero. So, so if there is something out there that someone is telling you is not intrinsically sinful, but still is sinful, right? That that's the argument that like the teetotaler kind of community 
mix, right? Well, you know, alcohol is not intrinsically sinful, obviously not, because like people in the Bible did it, like drank it, Jesus drank it. So like there, like alcohol coming into your body and like into your stomach is not intrinsically sinful, but there's no context in our reality, in our, in our situation where it isn't a sin to do it. That, that is just, first of all, I think people who listen to our show are smart enough that they can just see that's a stupid argument. Right. It's not intrinsically sinful, except that it's sinful in every circumstance. Well, that's a distinction without a difference right there. But the fact is that whatever it is that that person is trying to tell you, unless it actually is intrinsically sinful, you are not obligated in any sense of the word to allow their their unbiblical opinion to bind your conscience. And I think that's that's what gets to be difficult is that sometimes there's a disagreement between Christians about what is or isn't un, you know unbiblical. Like the people, and I'm just going to pick on John MacArthur because he's can take it right. right? There we go. John MacArthur seems to think, at least from what I've read and, and heard him say on this, that alcohol consumption is just sinful. Like it just is, and uh, you know he makes the arguments about well alcohol in the first century. He said at one point, just this was just so funny to me as someone who drinks IPAs that are are rather heavy beers sometimes, heavy in terms of alcohol content. He was like, well, wine in the first century was like 7%. And I was like, that's a pretty <laughs> average, that's like a pretty average IPA. Right. Like that's enough. You just drink like 12 ounces of that too quickly and you're going to, you're going to feel the effects of it. It's not, it's not rocket science. Anyway, that's an aside. He thinks he's making these principles based on biblical grounds. So like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like blast him and be like, well, this is just a just a private opinion that you know he's just a dummy. Well, no, like he has an unbiblical opinion. I believe he's read the Bible and interpreted it wrong in this instance. I also believe that he's interpreted it wrong in terms of eschatology. But for some reason, there are certain things where when we look at it, we almost like this is the this is a good example, right? If I say to another Reformed Christian who likes John MacArthur that, well, he's obviously wrong about dispensationalism, he, they're probably not going to get like really offended at me and act like I've committed some sort of personal offense against John right. MacArthur. But if I, in a lot of cases, that same person, if they agree with him on the, on the fact of alcohol being sinful or the opinion of alcohol being sinful, if I say, well, I think he's interpreted the Bible wrong in reference to his understanding of alcohol, all of a sudden it seems like people think, well, that's a, that you can't criticize that. Like that he, he read the Bible and he got there. And like, so who are you? It's like, well, we do that right. also sorts of times with all sorts of people. We we say people have interpreted the Bible wrongly a lot. Like that's a, like everybody has interpreted the Bible wrongly in some way and in some things Amen. we're very comfortable saying it, but in some things where it actually feels like we should be most comfortable saying it on some of these auxiliary issues that really don't have all that much impact. Like it seems like some of those things we're really uncomfortable pushing pushing back on. But I think you're right to go back to kind of where this all started. In this conversation, excuse me, I just like swallowed my my spit wrong. <laughs> That's great podcasting, amazing right podcasting. There. I'm not going to edit it out because I'm lazy. But to go back to where this conversation started, if you know someone who has a position that you believe is unbiblical, and it's not unnecessarily divisive to enjoy your freedom, to enjoy your Christian liberty then actually it's a good example to them because there are probably any number of areas where they have things that they do that you might think are probably not wise or not biblical and they're allowed to enjoy their Christian freedom. And actually it's helpful to them because there are probably things that they wish that they don't believe are sinful 
but they wish that they could do, but they're so wrapped up in what will people think. To see someone else who goes, yeah, I mean, I guess somebody's going to think that it might be sinful, but like the Bible, I, I feel like the Bible, I've read the Bible, seems like wine's a pretty good thing in the Bible, and it seems like that's okay, so I'm going to enjoy a beer once in a while, or I'm going to enjoy a whiskey, or whatever the alcohol might be. Or or someone who says, you know, I don't see a lot of, a lot of d- direct things in Scripture telling me how I need to dress when I come to church. So I'm going to come in a way that is not distracting to myself, not distracting to others, and allows me to worship without, without the distraction of that, right? Well, you know, if I feel that way, but I'm so wrapped up in what is it that, that people are going to think if I wear jeans on a Sunday, if I wear jeans to church, right? right. Or if my shirt, right. if, I just wear, if I don't wear a tie, whatever it might be. Well, when someone who actually has liberty, the, the stronger brother, right? In the weaker, stronger brother situation, the weaker brother is the one who doesn't, who thinks they can't partake of something that they actually right. can. That's the weaker brother. Well, in some instances, it's right for the sake of the weaker brother's conscience to temporarily, you know, abstain from something. But it's also right in lots of instances, and I would argue more instances, yes. to to in a healthy way partake of that in order to demonstrate to them that your conscience, which is stronger, is able to tolerate these things. Yeah. So it's a fine line. Like I, this isn't a disclaimer since this is a non-disclaimer. Although I'm kind of sensitive about you binding my conscience about disclaimers right now. <laughs> This is not a disclaimer. Uh, the reality is like there's wisdom in this and sometimes you get it wrong yes. and it's not an easy decision. Um, there are lots of times where you're going to blow it and you're going to hurt a brother because you were insensitive to something they're struggling with. And right. and we just have to, you know, if you do that, you apologize and you move on. Right. And, and maybe you think a little bit more difficultly or a little bit harder about it the next time you run up against that. But I know there was, I know there were lots of times when I was a young Christian where like the big thing I used to play Magic the Gathering a lot like I was a super nerd in in like middle school and high school and when I became a Christian I somehow got into my head that that we couldn't do this and I had I had probably spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these cards I had a really good collection I was really good at the game and I just threw them away because I thought that was what Christians did. And people pointed, mm-hmm. they're like, well, look at an axe when they burned all their magic scrolls. Why don't you burn your magic scrolls? That's not at all what that passage is talking about. <laughs> and so I allowed people, because I didn't know any better, I allowed people to bind my conscience. And I remember real distinctly, I was having a conversation with my youth pastor. And and I said to him, you know, he's like, well, how's it going? You know, I was a brand new Christian. He's like, how's it going? You know, you, you had your conversion experience a couple months ago. How's it going? And I said you know, Chris, I just really wish I could play Magic the Gathering. That's like the one thing I really, really miss. And he's like, why can't you play Magic the Gathering? And he he told me like he, he played Dungeons and Dragons when he was a kid. Like he played Dungeons and Dragons in the middle of the satanic panic. Like, and like he said, like, it was fine. Like, it's okay. Right. It's, it's a game. And it's, there are definitely games that aren't okay, but this is a game that's okay. And I just remember how much of an impact that made on me as like a 16 year old kid to think like, wow, mm-hmm. like, Becoming a Christian doesn't mean I actually can't do any of the fun stuff I want to do. Like, it's really not the the characteristic, uh, the character that atheists painted as like this list of rules and do's and don'ts, and it's all about you know falling in line and 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 you know not ever enjoying life at all. It's not like that at all. That's not what Christianity is. It has a cost. Christianity is not an easy religion. There, it does demand a lot of you, and sometimes you are called to lay down those worldly pleasures. But most of the time, Christians are not expected to live these radically ascetic lives in reference to things that we might enjoy eating or drinking or doing. And this conversation about the weaker brother implies that 
we don't want the weaker brother and we've all been the weaker brother right. and since we've been the stronger brother, but we don't want the weaker brother to stay in that weak condition. Right. That the whole point is in maturity and working out your salvation that we have what are hard discussions. We make hard decisions. The easy decision is like, I'm not going to do this thing, not because I'm bound in my conscience before God about it, but because I don't want somebody to get the wrong impression. The harder thing to do is to do that thing and then be ready to give testimony for why Christian liberty allows you to do that very thing. Again, presuming that all this stuff is not an abuse. So I think that's the thing that I find that we we ought to move in that direction, that it's just too easy to kind of say, I'm going to draw these boundary lines so that I'm I'm never in a place where somebody else could get the wrong idea. When really the better thing is, and I would actually argue this, like I like what you said when you were speaking, this came into my mind. If we're always working in a place where the law is unnecessary because we have a love for our brothers and sisters and for God, then that means that we're not hurting people volitionally, not right. purposefully and not nefariously. So if we hurt, it's out of accident. And so what if, as we're exercising Christian liberty, and even as we inadvertently hurt people, and then we have conversation around that, what if, like loved ones, God is using that for his salvific purposes to bring about a greater amount of, I would say, like redemption in our attitudes and our behaviors and in sanctification. What if he uses those hurts to have conversations where there's healing, where people understand each other better and speak their testimonies more practically? What if that happens because we exercise that Christian liberty, knowing that it might get messy in how people perceive us, but that we're always willing to give an account, that we always have a reason for it? You know, there's like a lot of nonsensical things that will happen. And what you said is totally true. If we hold these kind of weird bindings uh, all around us, then we find that we keep drawing the line in progressively distant places where everything just gets out of control. Yeah, I've often thought for like people that uh, like that hold the John MacArthur view of of drinking being like entirely bad. I just think, man. So those people are going to be super surprised when they sit down at the wedding supper, right? <laughs> of the, I mean. At the very least, like if they remember anything, they're gonna be like, "Wait, there's they're serving here. Yeah. Is that okay?" Like they'll be looking around. I know that sounds trite, and I don't exactly mean it to be, but even that, we you can see how far we've come. We've just taken yeah. that thing and disassociated it. Or this has also cracked me up. This happened a couple of weeks ago at uh, at my church. I bring it up because it is a is a funny example. There was uh, a church picnic, and as part of that picnic, they did something which I think is totally fun and totally appropriate, and that is. They played bingo. Nice. And I remember thinking when I heard about this, I was like, man, I've been in any number of Baptist churches where people just straight pass out. <laughs> if they, if somebody said, let's play bingo, let's, the church is condoning, you know, small capital C or small capital, lowercase C, the church is condoning bingo. And they'd be like, you're going to play a game of chance with the people <laughs> of God. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, where is the line then? And like all these things provide freedom. It's not that games of chance are wrong. It's that the abuse of those games, of course, are wrong. Right. That imparting some kind of like spiritual motive or seeking after some kind of, you know, spiritual decision-making through those games is wrong. We just need to be better Christians. At, and, and this is where I bring it up in our conversation because I actually think the reform community in particular could really like wave the flag on this on Christian liberty, like yeah. it could really move forward in humility because they do have this sense because we're kind of rebellious a little bit, so to speak in our Genesis out of like the Protestant reformation. And when we look at, you know, Zwingli smashing straight up icons or Luther saying, I'm going to drink this beer in your face to the glory of God, or <laughs> even Spurgeon saying, I'm going to sit down and smoke this cigar to the glory of God. Like that, that all, in all these things, we might be able to demonstrate an amazing Christian principle, which is 
all of us, no matter how God saved you, all of us are just recovering from that salvation. I feel like that's a lot of my life these days is like recovering. And part of that recovery process is learning, I think, to have maybe make these difficult, sort out these difficult things, behave in a way where the liberty that we have in Christ is real. And if there's any unintended fallout from brothers and sisters or the world over that, we're, we're able and willing to stand up and give a testimony yeah. as to why in Christ, that is how the, the person can only be free. There are no free people outside of Christ. And if that's true, then it should radically change how we consume things, what we do with our time, how we exercise, how we live, how we speak, everything. So I'm just like, let's get that flag and let's like march forward in Christian liberty that is like truly connected to Christ, truly humble under Christ and puts everything underneath him so that we might enjoy everything that he's given us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, uh, a good place to end on, uh, on that note. I think you're right on. I think we, we would make a very different impression on a world that is definitely watching us if we were able to actually kind of reclaim the good gifts that God has given us, right? Whether it's alcohol or whether it's other activities that Christians have um, kind of retreated from, we need to be able to say in in large part to the world, like, no, like the devil doesn't have all the good music, right? To kind of borrow from that right. song, like, no, like <laughs> our God created this. Right. Right we on. get to enjoy it because our God created it for for our blessing. And I think when we when we... You know, I don't I don't ever support making a theological decision on pragmatic basis, right? So we don't do this because it's effective. But I know I know that one of the things that marks pe- people are surprised about, and one of the things that I think actually makes it so I can have conversations with unbelievers that I'm I'm associated with a little bit easier, is that I'm not one of those kind of like weirdo Christians who like doesn't do normal things. Like I don't I don't like I don't hide in my room all the time and refuse to watch TV. I can talk about the latest Marvel movie or I can talk about, you know, I, I was watching friends last night. Like I don't, I don't like, I'm not a weird like desert mystic. Right. I, and this is something that was recaptured in the, the reformation, right? The reformation was not just about the theological uh, reformation. There was a, a practical and a, a, a lifestyle reformation that reclaimed the entire world as God's sphere. Right, it's not just the sacred places that are gods. Yes. It's right. all of the places that are gods. It's not just the all sacred the vocations that are gods. It's all of the vocations. It's not just the sacred objects. It's everything is gods. And if everything is gods, then we inherit all of those blessings as God's people. And so I think you're right. Like if we actually inherit all these things, then let's get out there and enjoy them appropriately. Right. And in a way that glorifies God and expresses gratitude to God for for the blessings that He's given us, but I think I think we would be seen very differently by the world and by other Christians if we actually really did live like we inherited the universe, like if we lived like all of this yes, was ours to exactly. enjoy. If exactly. if we lived like this entire garden is ours to enjoy, you know, it makes me think. And then we can we can wrap this up, right? When the serpent came into the garden. And said, "Are you able to eat of any tree in the garden? Are, are did God say you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? What Eve said was accurate. No, we can eat of all of the trees in the garden except this one. Right on. God has actually right held us back from this one. But other than that, God has created all of this for us to enjoy and to to, to benefit from. Right? That was that was true." for her. It was true at the time that although God does have things that he holds back from us for our own good, for his own reasons, 
that that doesn't mean that other things are held back from us. In reality, most things are not held back from us as Christians. And I think we do tend to live life as though most things were held back from us. Like, yeah, we have these, we have these like very small subset of blessings that we can enjoy. Right. And I think the reality is that like the whole cosmos is there for us to enjoy the relative amount of things that God holds back for us because they're dangerous to us are actually very small. That's well said. I love that. See, I couldn't have said it better myself. So we did a really good job. I think. Yeah. Can we pat ourselves? We're Can we have a little awesome. moment of, of pride for saying that we avoided disclaimers, I think, exceptionally well, yeah. because we are a people of disclaimers. So with that being said, if you listen to this and you're thinking, what about uh, those who have abused things in the past? What about marijuana? Consider this your super Jason disclosure. Yeah, yeah. We said all those things. <laughs> we, You know us. We're this, And this is why I think this is an important conversation, because we're, we want to get beyond that stuff and talk about you know, what it really means day to day in reclaiming all the cosmos. I, I love that. Let's reclaim it. Do we need a flag for that? Can we sell it in our store? Like an official, like Christian Liberty flag that you could, you know, put in your car, march around your neighborhood that says like, I will enjoy all of the good gifts God has given to me. Yeah. Let's do a fanny pack though. I think everything, <laughs> every slogan that we want to promulgate should be on a fanny pack. Definitely a fanny you're, pack. You're really into the fanny pack, huh? <laughs> I mean, I think the fanny pack is making a comeback. I see like expensive, this seems like my internet browsing is super weird now that I'm going to say this out loud, but I see like a lot of expensive fanny packs online. I guess it's like a thing now again. I guess. I don't know. There's like a circle. That is something that if you are a Christian, you are free to enjoy the fanny pack. Yes. Yeah. Don't let anybody say to you either that's like, it's inappropriate or like, how dare you wear it on the back by your fanny? You have to wear it in the front. Listen, you wear that fanny pack proudly wherever you'd like it to be. Yes. Yeah. And if it's got our face emblazoned on it, all the better. You can't even buy those. So you'd have to make your own. I would love if someone made their own like puff paint, bedazzled fanny pack with like our logo on it. Like the hand, hand drew our logo. That'd be amazing. The definitive, if you will, reform brotherhood fanny pack. The definitive fanny pack. That, that would be definitive. Well, until somebody sends us a picture of that reformed brotherhood fanny pack or until next week, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.